Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recorded live. Thank <laughs> you. 
Oh. 
Lord Heavenly Father, we praise you and worship you and love you. And we thank you, Father, for giving us another day, another chance, another opportunity to hear your voice, to feel your presence, to serve you, to love you, to worship you. Thank you, Father, for the breath of life, of eternal life. And even if the enemy were to kill our flesh, that they are not able to kill our soul, for our breath and our life is in your hands and only in your hands. We thank you, Father, for your protection, for your mercy, and for your grace that you have shown us. We thank you for this very special day of atonement that you did atone for our sins, that you did bleed and die for our sins, that we will not have to suffer the second death, but that we may live and live with you and through you for eternal life forever and forever without end. We ask your Father to help us now to understand more about this day and about the future and about the kingdom and your spirit. We ask your Father to help us to draw closer to you through this fasting. We ask for help getting through this day and through these next few years. We pray that your spirit prevail in us and in our families. Help us to stay strong against temptation and in this war. We ask your Father that your will be done in us. In Jesus' holy name, so be it. Amen. Praise Jesus. Let's turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus 29. We're going to be reading from the Alpha and Omega Bible, but for anybody that does not yet have a copy, you can either read along with us uh, if you've downloaded it to your computer or how to follow along in the New American Standard Bible or the King James Bible or any translation you may have available to you right now. We'll be starting in Exodus 29. And I encourage people to have an ink pen and notepad ready uh, in case you would like to take some notes to help you to remember some of these things that we will go over today. Now, there's always, a lot of times, pretty often, people that listen for the first time or people that might be coming along later on in the following weeks or months or years ahead that will come back to the previous broadcasts and listen to the previous broadcasts. And so... Um, I will... Because there are people that will listen to the first time, whether it's live or in a archive or rebroadcast, I'll just say that there will be things 
that you would hear today that you have never heard before. And when you hear such things you've never heard before, I ask you to take time in studying the scriptures, praying and fasting, and truly, sincerely seeking the truth. Take time to do so rather than rashly, quickly discounting things that you hear for the first time. Just because you've never heard it before doesn't mean that it's not true automatically. And I don't expect people to automatically believe me or to blindly blindly follow me or my teachings. I don't expect that, don't want that. But I do ask that people take time fasting, praying, seeking, studying, to examine and to prove all things, to see whether or not it's true, rather than automatically discounting. For the record, today's date in the Roman Catholic calendar that the Western world follows is September 30th, 2017 A.D., in the year of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, But in God's calendar, it is the 10th day of the seventh month. 10th day of the seventh month. That means it is the day of atonement. What does that word atonement mean? I've been told many times in my lifetime that the word atonement means at one meant, because that's what the letters are. Atonement at one, at one meant that the blood of Jesus atones for us, and that brings us into reconciliation with him, back into being at one with him. And that's only true to a certain extent as far as what the word atonement means. It definitely refers to the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, that he is reconciling us to himself and bringing us back into being at one with him, yes. But it also means something else, even more, that I've never been told before. And so I'd like to share that with you today. And to discover that, we will first examine some errors that have been put into the Bible, some twisting that has been put into the Bible and prove it to you. We will compare the King James Version, New American Standard, and the Alpha and Omega Bible with the oldest, most complete manuscripts that we have available to mankind and and see what the Bible is supposed to say in the way it's been corrupted. In Exodus 29, starting in verse 1. Exodus 29, starting in verse 1. And these, reading in Alpha and Omega Bible, and these are the things which you shall do to them. You shall sanctify them so that they shall serve me in the priesthood. And you shall take one young calf from the herd and two unblemished rams. So verse 1 tells you right there what's going to happen in the following verses. 
the context of the chapter is that God is instructing Moses and Aaron about how to sanctify or anoint or ordain the priesthood. This chapter is about sanctifying, purifying, ordaining the priesthood of the Levitical priesthood. It says that you shall sanctify them. How to purify and how to ordain the priesthood of the Levitical priesthood, which we know is done and over with. The Levitical priesthood does not exist now. Now we're under the King Mechaziah priesthood, the priesthood of Jesus Christ himself. He is the high priest, as the book of Hebrews tells us. And this is important to think about here on this Day of Atonement, because the Day of Atonement is connected to the priesthood. This would be the only day of the entire year that the high priest of the Levitical priesthood would enter into the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain where the very presence of Jesus was, the very presence of the Lord. There's only one Lord. Not two, not three, not four, not five. Only one Lord. There's always only been one Lord. Always and forever and forever will be. Only one Lord. The Bible says that Jesus is Lord. That's where the presence of Jesus was behind the curtain until the curtain ripped in two to where we can now also enter into the presence of God right here in our homes. Amen. And so, only on this Day of Atonement could the high priest enter behind that curtain during the Old Covenant days. So, this Day of Atonement, we have to think about that, need to think about that, should think about that, about the priest going behind the curtain there into the presence of God. Now, but this chapter is not talking about the Day of Atonement. It's talking about preparing this high priest, preparing the priesthood, preparing them, giving them, giving them their clothing, their authority, their instructions, how to enter the priesthood, uh, what to wear, what they was to wear, how they was to approach, uh, how they are was to perform their duties in the temple, in the tabernacle, the traveling tabernacle during the wilderness, during the 40 years. So in verse 2, unleavened loaves, un- unleavened loaves, yielded with oil, and unleavened cakes, anointed with oil, you should make them a fine flour of wheat, and you should put them on one basket, and shall offer them on the basket, and the young calf, and the two rams. And you should bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle of testimony, and then you should wash them with water. And having taken the garments, you should put on the on Aaron your brother both the full length robe and the ephod and the oracle, and you should join for him the oracle to the ephod. And you should put the turban on his head, and you should put the plate, even holding it, on the turban. The turban is his hat that he would wear in the tabernacle. And you take uh, the anointing oil and you put oil on his head and should anoint him. Verse 8, and you should bring his sons and put garments on them 
meaning special priesthood garments. Verse 9, and you shall gird them with the girdles and put. And it says in the Alpha Omega Bible, right now, currently, unfortunately, it says put on the tires. But that is the language that Sir Lancelot Brenton, when he did when he did the 1800s translation of this, he wrote the word tires. And so, of course, that's not correct. So in Alpha and Omega Bible, we need to correct that. I have never said, never said, that this translation is 100% accurate. It's not. I've said repeatedly that it needs work. It needs editing. It needs adjustment. And uh, I did not look at every word of the Bible when I published this translation. But I looked at many, many, many words, many, 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 many verses throughout the Bible uh, with a fine-tooth comb over and over. But I did not examine this particular verse. And so uh, coming back to this verse, you need to cross out the word tires and put turbans. Uh, And so it should say, verse 9, and you should gird them with the girdles and put the the turbans on them, and they shall have a priestly office for me, to me. Uh, And then where it says forever, it should say long term, or until end of term. See that, that Greek and the Assyrian and the Hebrew word there that is translated as forever, and in some translations, the word perpetual, Uh, is used many times in Scripture for things that are not perpetual and are not forever, uh, but rather long-term and until the end of term. For example, circumcision was said to be forever and perpetual. But it's very, very clear, absolutely clear, that the New Testament says that we do not have to be circumcised. Jesus is not going to check to see if your son or your husband or you, if you have foreskin on you or not before, before rather or not you can enter the marriage supper. Foreskin is nothing, nothing to the kingdom of God. Used to with Abraham, even during the times of Moses. It was ceremonial. It had special symbolism, but now, as Romans 2 tells us, that a true Jew is he that is circumcised in the heart and not one in the flesh. And we don't, we don't practice Judaism, and that's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about a religion or a denomination of man. But when it says in Romans true, a true Jew, and even in in Revelation 2, where it's talking about against those of the synagogue of Satan who call themselves Jews but are not, has nothing to do with bloodlines, has nothing to do with races of mankind. It has everything to do with whether or not you're covered in the blood of Jesus 
truly saved, truly have his spirit living in you. And if you are truly saved and has his spirit living in you, then he looks upon you as a spiritual Israelite, a true Jew. And a true Jew, a true spiritual Israelite, is one that is circumcised in the spirit and in the heart and not one in the flesh. So forever does not always mean forever because circumcision is done away with. And so here, the Levitical priesthood was done away with. So you need to cross out the word forever or perpetual and or eternal or whatever your translation may say until the end of term or long term. So you shall have that priestly office until the end of term, and you shall feel the hands of Aaron and the hands of his sons. Now let's go down to verse 36. Verse 36. And you shall sacrifice the calf of the sin offering on the day of purification or atonement. Now, King James and New American Standard and NIV and most translations says Day of Atonement. But that's absolutely not correct because you can go all the way back to verse 1 and all the way down to the last verse of this chapter is not talking about the Day of Atonement. So perhaps after services you can go back and read every word of this chapter and double-check on that. But it is not talking about the Day of Atonement. Two reasons we know that for sure. Actually, three reasons. Reason number one, verse one tells you the context. That is about sanctifying the priesthood. It is establishing the priesthood. It's not even the Day of Atonement. Reason number two, is what animals were sacrificed on that day. It talks about the calves and the rams in verse 1. But you can read the whole chapter. doesn't say anything about sheep and goats. But on the Day of Atonement, remember, and as we're going to confirm here in a few minutes in another book of the Bible, on the Day of Atonement, you had four different types of animals that were sacrificed. And it was the only day of the year that you had four different types of animals to be sacrificed. The only day of the year. But yet this chapter only mentions two types of animals, not four. So it was not the Day of Atonement. Not talking about the Day of Atonement. Reason number three is if you look at the Greek Saturian, which is the translation that Jesus and the apostles actually read from and quoted from, it was the only Bible available to the people in the day of Jesus Christ when he walked upon the earth. The only Bible of the Old Testament that was available to the people was only the Greek Satutian. There was the translation they used and knew and was raised with. Paul, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the only translation they knew their entire life was the Greek Satutian. 
And when you look at the Greek Saturian, it does not say Day of Atonement here, but rather it says Day of Purification or Day of Cleansing. And so what it's talking about is Day of Sanctifying, Cleansing, Purifying the Priesthood and the tabernacle and the tabernacle furniture and all those things, getting the tabernacle, the traveling tent, the traveling church, the traveling tabernacle in the wilderness, getting these things prepared. It was not the day of atonement. So verse 36, you should sacrifice the calf for the sin offering on the day of purification. Alpha and Omega Bible get that right, the day of purification. And you should purify or cleanse the altar when you shall perform. It should say, when you shall perform. Consecration upon it, and you shall anoint it so as to sanctify it. It's all about sanctifying, purifying, and ordaining the priests and the priestly furniture and the tent and so forth if you read all these chapters in context. Remember that if you want to understand the scriptures, you need to consider the entire context, not just one verse and not just one word, but the entire chapter and the chapter before it and the chapter after it to get the context in order to really and truly understand true doctrine. So here I have shown you where the Bibles have been corrupted because when they came out with the Babylonian translation, the Targum, the Assyrian language translation during the Babylonian captivity, they removed the word purification, day of purification, put in the Assyrian words for atonement, either to completely get people messed up or they didn't understand it. But for one reason or another, they corrupted it in these verses. And it's probably for the reason of deception and get people confused. But when the Greek Saturnian was translated, they corrected it. They corrected the Bible. They restored the Bible. So that when Jesus walked on earth, he would have a Bible with the correct words day of purification in this chapter. Jesus knew that he was coming to the earth and he prepared the Bible for restoration so that when he walked upon the earth, he would have a Bible for him and his followers and his disciples that was more clean, more acceptable, and more correct than the Bible that was used during the Babylonian captivity and, and thereafter. But the Greek Saturnian was not perfect because they did not restore the name of God. They did not restore the name of Jesus back into the Bible. So it wasn't a perfect translation, but it was definitely better than the Assyrian Bible that came out of the captivity. Now, <clears throat> let's look at some places where the word atonement is correctly 
correctly stated and correctly written. And that would be Leviticus 23. Let's go to Leviticus 23. And again, anytime we talk about the holy days, we need to examine Leviticus 23. It is the go-to chapter of an excellent list of the holy days. Anytime you think of the holy days, you should automatically think of Leviticus 23. It is the chapter of a great condensed list of the holy days. So Leviticus 23, look at verse 27. In the black and white edition of Alpha and Omega Bible, that would be page 89. And the black and white edition of the Alpha and Omega Bible, page 89. So Leviticus 23, verse 27. Now look at verse 26. Verse 26 says, And Jesus spoke to Moses. The reason it says Jesus spoke to Moses is that the words the Lord in all capitals was inserted into the Bible. It did not say the Lord in the original Hebrew fragments that we have, but it said Jesus. Because there's only one God, always has been one God, always will be one God. So we spoke to Moses. Jesus. Amen. So Jesus spoke to Moses saying, also on the tenth day, that's today, the tenth day of this seventh month is a day of atonement. That's translated correctly. When you look at the Greek word for atonement in this verse and the and the Greek word in Exodus 29 that we looked at a while ago, it's a different Greek word. So Exodus 29 is not talking about the Day of Atonement. But this is. And the context of this chapter is the Holy Days. So you know this is talking about the Day of Atonement. And it should be a holy, summoned assembly, meaning, meaning that you are summoned summoned, just like you're summoned to court. It's a court order. It is a summoned or commanded or lawfully commanded, legally commanded, summoned assembly. It's not a choice. You have a choice to obey or not obey, live or die, but it's not a suggestion. It is a command of God. You are summoned to gather together on this day, and you shall humble your souls or afflict your souls. Either way would be acceptable translation. Humble or afflict your souls and shall offer a burnt offering to Jesus. Now, of course, we don't do burnt offerings anymore because that is a ceremonial, ritual, old covenant thing that was done away with by the blood of Jesus. And the book of Revelation tells us the our prayers is now our offerings, our burnt offerings. So I would like for you to put a bookmark here 
and so that you can come back to that here in a minute and turn over to Revelation chapter 8. Now, with the Alpha and Omega Bible, we have three volumes, so you gotta, you got to fumble around with three books, uh, and that's kind of difficult to deal with, learn to do, and inconvenient, because we're spoiled by having only one book of the Bible. But back in the time of the original, original manuscripts, even in the time of Jesus, they did not have just one book. They had scrolls, and they had multiple scrolls, multiple, upon multiple, upon multiple scrolls. And some people only had only Genesis, and that's it. That's the only thing they owned. Some people had only Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. Some people had only the first five books. Some people had only Isaiah. Some people had only Psalms because there were multiple scrolls and it wasn't easy to tote around 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 scrolls. They didn't have books yet. They only had scrolls. But by the time Jesus walked on earth, books were starting to appear upon the planet. Uh, but really only the riches of the people and the high priests and those people and the governors and the rulers would have had the books first, being the people of a higher rank and authority and money and class of civilization and so forth at the time. And it would really would have would have taken uh decades after Jesus before uh books of the Bible instead of scrolls would have been uh embraced by the people. Uh so when we deal with just three books of the Bible, remember that it may be maybe a little uh, a challenge for us today in 2017 to deal with three volumes of the Bible, but just think about somebody trying to bring many, many, many different scrolls with them to church or to a friend's house or, or somewhere. All right, so Revelation 8, Revelation chapter 8, Verse 3, Revelation 8, verse 3, And another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add it, add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. The prayers of the saints, your prayers are on the altar of God in the temple of God in heaven, on the altar, the altar of fire. Your prayers are on the altar of fire in the temple of God in heaven. Verse 4, And the smoke of the incense and the prayers of the saints went up before the theos. And that's not a pagan word. Theos means God. It also means the Alpha and the uh, Alpha and the Omega. A lot of people have wrongfully 
been taught that the word theos is a pagan word, and it's not. The word theos is an ancient Hebrew, true Hebrew, Paleo-Hebrew word. It got transcended down into the Greek language because Greek comes from Hebrew. We know for a fact we have historical record that the Greek people adopted the language of the Israelites. So how do we get the Greek language? Where does it come from? From Hebrew, from the Israelites. We have records of that. So the Greek language is not unique to the Greek people or to the Greek empire. They got it from Israel. It is Hebrew. Greek is Hebrew. You could put the Greek letters right beside the ancient Hebrew letters, the oldest fragments upon the earth of the of the Paleo-Hebrew language that we know is Hebrew, and nobody would debate it. Nobody would debate it. What we know is Hebrew of the oldest fragment, and put those letters right beside. Greek letters, and many of those letters are 100% identical. Some of them 90% identical. Some of them 75% identical. But many letters 100% identical. Greek is Hebrew. Now, the word theos is Hebrew or Greek, same thing but it's older than modern Greek. Theos is agent, agent Hebrew. And it was originally applied only to the true God, only to the true God. Theos was originally applied only to the true God. But then, throughout history, as, as men started to claim to be Theos, claimed to be God, it got transferred over to pagan gods because they were claiming to be the theos. They were claiming to be the Alpha and Omega. And so that's where people say that it's pagan because you find the word theos referring to Zeus and all the other false gods. But that's only because they were claiming to be God. And that is why, but it is not pagan. So your prayers go up to the theos. This is what John actually wrote. John did not write the word God. He did not write the word God. He he wrote the word theos. Now, was John a pagan? Absolutely not. John, who wrote the book of Revelation, was not a pagan. He was a true worshiper of God Almighty. And he wrote Theos, not God. And that's why we write the word Theos in the Alpha and Omega Bible. And we ended up before Theos out of the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And so forth. So right here we see that our prayers is our offerings by fire. So anytime you read about any of the holy days and it says you've got to do these burnt offerings or 
animal sacrifices, Jesus is our one-time eternal sacrifice. You should not even have lamb for Passover because only Jesus is the lamb of God. And all of that animal symbolism is gone except for that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Animals no longer have anything to do with our salvation at all, except for only that Jesus is the Lamb of God, that he was the sacrifice one time forever for our sins. But I will show you a verse much later on here where that unclean people are still represented by unclean animals because unclean people are not cleansed. They are not sanctified. They are not purified. Unclean people are still unclean. Amen. Until they get cleansed. And so... What we see here in Leviticus 23 is a commandment to fast on this day, to humble ourselves, to afflict our souls. It does not use the word fast, but it uses the word humble or afflict. And the, there is, in the Greek and Hebrew, words have like hundreds of meanings. People don't understand that. But in Greek and Hebrew, and even in Assyrian, all these languages of the Bible, words have multiple, multiple meanings. And the word soul here can also mean appetite. Where it says humble or afflict your soul, it could also be translated as humble or afflict your appetite. Now, I'm not going to change it. I'm going to keep it as so, because it almost always means your breath, your, your soul, your, your inner being, who you really are, but it can also mean appetite. And in this context, it can mean appetite even more so. But people don't understand that in, in Bible languages, you can take one word and translate it 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 different ways. And so that's why we have to be careful about not going by the letter of the law, but rather going by the spirit of the law. People get so caught up in ABC and letters and words, and they don't listen to the spirit, and they don't feel the spirit. And if we feel the Spirit and listen to the Spirit, then we have God himself teaching us. And the Bible says that he is our teacher and that he teaches us all things. And if he teaches us all things to where we can come into all truth, then that transcends misunderstandings of letter. And that's why the Spirit warns us against the why names 
That's why the Spirit warns us against false prophecies, such as the September 23rd prophecy that was false. If we listen to the Spirit and know God intimately and personally and deeply and sincerely, truly follow Him and obey Him and serve Him and love Him, His Spirit teaches us and protects us and teaches us. So, whether you put so or appetite here, we know what it means. Regardless of how we translate it, we know what it means. We know it does mean fasting. And, and instead, of, uh, instead of celebrating today, like you would normally do on a lot of the other holy days, instead of celebrating, today is a day of affliction. Today is a day of humbling ourselves, a day of crying a day of laying on the floor, a day of turning out the lights, not that you have to, but a, a day of, of, of uh, solemn. It is a solemn assembly. It is not a day of shouting. It's not a day of partying and celebration. But the fiesta of tabernacles is different. The fiesta of tabernacles is a, a grand celebration a time of really, really celebrating. But people don't do that. They observe the days and they rest and they sort of worship, but they don't celebrate. But we're supposed to celebrate on the fiesta of tabernacles. And that's why I translate it as fiesta of tabernacles rather than feast of tabernacles because to me, in my mind, feast is just eating. But in my mind, fiesta is party, celebrate. And I feel that not only in my mind, but in the Holy Spirit of God. That fiesta is more lively, more of a word of celebration. Amen. So I hope that you remember that, that... The fiesta of tabernacle is a time of celebration. We should put up balloons and, and streamers and decorations and, and, and make an effort to make it more of a celebration rather than just a meal and a gathering. Amen. Now let's go to... Well, before we go somewhere else, I want to focus in a little bit more on this word atonement and the Greek word for it. The Greek word for atonement in this verse here in Leviticus 23 is Greek number 1837.4. Again, it's Greek 1837.4. And where do I get that number from and what does it mean? Uh, I encourage everybody to have a copy of the Strong's Concordance of the Bible, which is a book that gives you every word in the Bible. Every word. And they have it now for New American Standard. Because when I was young uh, and as a teenager and 
starting, first starting to study the Bible, the only thing they had at that time was only the King James Version, Strong's Concordance. But now they've got New American Standard Bible, Strong's Concordance, which is much, 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 much better. So if you don't yet have a New American Standard Bible concordance, I really, really encourage you to get one because the New American Standard Bible considers the Greek student much more than the King James does. The King James strong concordance goes pretty much strictly by the Assyrian manuscripts, and that's bad. And so the New American Standard Concordance would be much more helpful to you with the accuracy of the scriptures and what the actual Greek words were and so forth for the New Testament. But again, you need to also remember that the Concordance, even in the New American Standard Concordance, when it points you to the Old Testament, it's still pointing you to the Assyrian language and not Hebrew. For the Greek words of the Greek Satudian for the Old Testament, there is not any such thing as a strong concordance for the Greek words of the Old Testament. But there is another manuscript, and it's called the Asopolic Bible uh, Polygot. And all you got to look up on the internet is the uh, Asopotic Bible published by a man that lives in the state of Washington. And it's, it's a Bible and not a concordance, but it's a Bible translation based on the Greek Statutian, even like the Alpha and Omega Bible is also. It's not as accurate as the Alpha and Omega Bible, to be honest with you. And I'm not prejudice about this. I'm not saying it just because I want to promote the Alpha and Omega Bible, but rather truly, truly, truly it's not as accurate as far as his translation. But where that Bible is extremely helpful is right above every word in the Old Testament and throughout the Bible, above every word is a strong concordance number as well as showing you in the Greek what the word looked like right there in that verse, in every verse in the Bible. It will show you the original Greek word and a strong sequence number. And that is the only paperback or hardback copy in the world. The only Bible, the only concordance, the only reference material on the planet that will give you a strong sequence number to the original words of the Old Testament. So it's just like having a strong sequence of the Greek Statutian Old Testament. So that's another thing to buy. I know it's more money, but it's a very valuable, priceless resource. But when you prepare his translation, you will find mistakes based on his religion. I think he's a Lutheran. So you're still going to a Babylonian translation. But 
it gives you the original Greek words and a Strong's Occurrence number. Then you can take that Strong's Occurrence number and research that Greek word. And that is where it's priceless and very valuable resource. That is far as a paperback or hardback copy. Of course, as long as you've got the Internet, you don't really need that manuscript, that Bible, or that translation. As long as you've got the Internet, you can look up the Greek uh, words for every book of the Greek Security in the Old Testament. But we're not always going to have the Internet. We're not always going to have the Internet. We're not always going to have electric. We won't always be able to look up things on the Internet. And for that reason, that is the only reason why I'm telling you about that hardback or paperback copy of there. Now, the reason I said that is it's Greek word 1837.4. That's the number that he assigns to that word. And when you study out that Greek word atonement here in Leviticus 23, it means not just reconciliation and not just coming back into one with God, but also, and even more so, it actually means appropriation. Appropriation, P-R-O, propitiation? Propitiation. I'll spell that again again for you. P-R-O-P-I-T-I-A-T-I-O-N. Another word that it it can be translated as reparation. Another word, reparation. Like like how there's, you know, some people trying to get the reparations for the slaves, for the black people that They want you to pay money to the black people for reparations for the slaves. So that is a similar word that's spelled different but means the same thing. And the way you spell that word is R-E-P-A-R-A-T-I-O-N. I'll spell that one more time for you. R-E-P-A-R-A-T-I-O-N, reparations. So whether we, whether we translate it as atonement or propitiation or reparation, what it's talking about is offering or a sacrifice or doing something, a pay for wrong, a pay for wrong, repay for wrong, a, a reparation or Reparation for the slaves would be paying money to try to rectify the situation for the wrong that was done to the slaves. So atonement is something that is done to repay for a wrong or to make amends for a wrong. It is an offering to God to please God, to please him of his wrath, to appease him of his anger in placement of uh, or to repay 
for our sins. It can mean appeasement, turning away wrath by offering repay. It could be translated as repay. To make amends, to pay for a wrong, to reconcile by sacrifice or by repay. To render pay due because of a wrong. And to please God or to please a person by paying for a wrong. So it means more than just bringing into one or bringing back into unity or being reconciled. It's doing those things, being reconciled by paying or bringing an offering to make amends for a wrong. So another way of translating Day of Atonement and to use only one word to make it short, you could say that this is the day of pay or this is the day of repay in order to make amends for wrong. Amen. When Jesus died for our sins during the Passover season, he paid for our sins, paid for our wrongs. But on the day of atonement, there's a difference. This is not Passover. This is the day of repay. This is the day of of pleasing God by sacrifice because of wrongdoing. It is the day of repay. Let's look at Revelation 18. Now, that one particular Greek word for atonement, 1837.4, it's not found anywhere in the New Testament. But there are synonyms. Synonym. A synonym is a word that is a different word that means the same thing. And there are other Greek words in the New Testament that means the same thing, even though the word atonement itself is not in the New Testament, at least not that same Greek word. But there are synonyms. Revelation 18. I'm going to show you a synonym, a word, another Greek word that means the same thing. Revelation 18, starting in verse 1. Revelation 18, verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was lit with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every kind of unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and detestable bird. It says hateful bird in New American Standard and King James, and I did have hateful bird in the Alpha and Omega Bible, but I am now correcting that now that I'm digging deeper and deeper and deeper into these words, into these verses, into these languages, 
and it needs to be translated as detestable bird. Now, a lot of people would say that this verse is a verse that proves that we still have unclean animals, but it doesn't prove that at all for two reasons. Reason number one, the context. The context has absolutely nothing to do with food or eating, but rather judgment and repay, wrath and the destruction upon Babylon. So the context does not fit the, the, the meaning that people try to force upon it. And reason number two is that the context and the relationship between this word and the other words within the same chapter and other chapters related to this points us entirely to this being a symbolism for demons and unclean people, lost people. The footnote that I have written here in the Alpha and Omega Bible says, in Revelation 4, verse 7, and in Revelation 8, verse 13, angels are seen as birds. Angels are seen as being eagles. Unclean birds represent unrepentant people and fallen angels. It does not represent actual unclean animals, which were done away with in Mark 7, verse 19, and Acts 10, verse 15. A person may ask, if there are no unclean animals now, why then does it use an unclean animal to represent an unclean person or unclean angel? And the answer is that it is the blood of Jesus which cleans both animals and mankind. If the blood of Jesus is not applied, it is not cleansed. The blood of Jesus has not been applied to these specific people, these specific angels. It is definitely symbolically pointing to angels and people. It's not talking about real birds. Is it really saying, is it really saying that Babylon, the city, is going to be filled with uh, unclean birds that we cannot eat. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But there will be uh, raptors, birds, vultures, eating the flesh of the dead, but this is actually talking about spirits and people. When you compare it to Revelation 4, verse 7, and when you compare it to Revelation 8, verse 13, and when you compare it to other words in the same verse, it's talking about fallen angels and fallen people, lost people. It's not talking about food. Then you come down to verse 3, and all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, of her sins. 
and the kings of the earth had committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth had become rich by the wealth of her luxuries, indulgence, passion, and arrogance. And I heard another voice out of heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you would not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Then go down to verse 7. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning, which she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and I will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, death and mourning and famine, and she would be burned up with fire. For the Lord, the Theos, the Alpha and Omega, who judges her, is strong. Amen. There is a judgment coming to her. Look at verse 6. I need to go back up to verse 5. Verse 5, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and the Theos has remembered her iniquity. Verse 6, pay her back even as she has paid. Now that word pay there is the synonym that I want you to look at. The word pay there means repay for sin. To repay and it's a synonym. It's the Greek word number 591. Greek word 591. And it means to repay wages or reward what she deserves for her sins. The Day of Atonement represents not only that Jesus died for our sins to pay for our sins, but it also represents that there is a day coming in false religion, the Roman Catholic Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Lutheran Church, the Baptist Church, the Pentecostal Church, the white cults, all false religion, Jehovah Witnesses, so forth, false religion, as well as the city of Mecca, Saudi Arabia, Istanbul, Turkey, and Rome, all of these cities and other cities across the globe will fall, will be destroyed, and will be repaid for their sins. It is a day of repay. The day of atonement pictures something still yet in the future, not only in the past with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but in the future. Why is it in the seventh month of the year? Think about that. Why is the Day of Atonement right in between the Feast of Trumpets and the Fiesta of Tabernacles? Feast of Trumpets represents the blowing of the last seven trumpets and the very last trumpet. It pictures us being called up to heaven for the marriage supper of the Lamb of God, which does occur in heaven. Check it out in Revelation 19, that the marriage supper of the Lamb of God occurs in heaven. And if we're going to be at the marriage supper, then we need to be called up into heaven, contrary to what the world watches of God 
used to teach, contrary to what a lot of whining groups teach, contrary to a lot of so-called truth churches, which are not truth churches because they don't tell you that, yes, you will be called up into heaven and you will go to heaven if you are part of the first resurrection, but you will only be there for only 41 and a half days. You can study that out more in Daniel 12 and the book of Revelation and so forth. And then we come back down after the wrath is over with. And on the day we come back down is a day of slaughter. I want to give you verses now, which a lot of you have already read over and over, and I've talked about it over and over. But we need to read it again and talk about it again today for new people and because this is the day of talking about. This is the day of slaughter. This is the day of repay. This is the day of wrath. This is the day of God when he is going to slaughter, sacrifice the rams, the goats, the sheep, all these animals that are people, unclean people, lost people who have not been purified, lost people who have not been sanctified, lost people who have not gotten saved. They are dirty, they are filthy, and they will be slaughtered as animals on this day. Let's look. Now, there in Revelation 18, it's a day of repay. What day is this talking about? It's talking about the day Jesus comes. You can compare it to Zechariah 14, the day Jesus comes. Again, going back to why it's in the seventh month. Trumpets represent the blowing of the trumpets, including the last trump when we are called up. It pictures the return of Jesus Christ at the blowing of a trumpet as well. And then look at tabernacles. What does tabernacles represent? The thousand-year millennium, as well as the fact that we're in the flesh, that we have temporary homes of straw. We have temporary homes that can be blown down. That we live in tents in a fragile body, in a fragile house that can be blown away in a hurricane, but it also represents the millennium, the thousand years. So why is the Day of Atonement right in between those two prophetic dates? The date of this being called up and the day of the millennium. What comes in between those two things? The return of Jesus Christ to this earth. So Revelation 18 pictures or talks about the day Jesus comes being the very day that Jericho falls, the very day that Babylon falls at the blowing of the seven trumpets, and then Jesus comes on this day of slaughter. Now let's look at that a little bit more. Numbers 29. Numbers 29. Verse 1. I mean, verse 7. Let's start in verse 7. Numbers 29. 
Let's just go up. Let's start in verse 1. Number 29, verse 1. And in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, there shall be to you a holy commanded assembly. You should do no laborious work. It shall be to you a day of blowing the trumpet. And you shall offer whole burnt offerings, which is now our prayers, for sweet scent to Jesus, one calf of the herd, one ram, seven lambs of a year old without blemish. That's only three types of animals on trumpets. But then you come down to verse 7. On the tenth day of the month, the day of atonement, there shall be unto you a holy commanded assembly, and you shall afflict your souls, and you shall do no work. Verse 8, you shall bring near whole burnt offerings for sweet-smelling scent to Jesus, burnt sacrifices to Jesus, one calf of the herd, one ram, and seven lambs of your old. They should be to you without blemish. And their meat offering should be fine flour mingled with oil, three tenth deals of one calf, and two tenth deals of one ram, and a tenth deal of several lambs, seven lambs, so on. Now I'm trying to find the four animals here. Where is the goat? Verse 11. Okay, verse 11. And one kid of the goats. So what I like for you to do is in verse 11, underline the word goats. And in verse 8, underline the calf, underline ram, underline lambs. So verse 8, you've got three animals, the calf, the ram, and the lamb. In verse 11, you got goats. So on the 10th day of the month, the day of the tongue, you got a total of four different distinct animals. And it was the only day of the year where you had four types of animals and other verses confirm this. Now, the day of atonement, four animals for slaughter. These four. So now, understanding that and remembering that, let's go to Isaiah, which will tell us when Jesus comes, he's going to slaughter people the very same as slaughtering these four specific animals. Isaiah 34. Isaiah 34, verse 1. Isaiah 34, verse 1. Draw near, you nations, and hearken, you princes. Let the earth hear, and they that are in it, 
the world and the people that are therein. For the wrath of Jesus is upon all nations. And if you look at Revelation 16, it is the wrath of Jesus, not the wrath of any different spirit or any different person. And his anger upon the number of them, to destroy them and to give them to slaughter, underline the word slaughter. And their slain will be cast forth, and their corpse, and their ill savior shall come up, or their ill smell, or scent. I would put scent there rather than savior. Savior is just another word for scent. Shall come up, and the mountains shall be made wet with their blood. And the pyres of the heavens shall melt, and the sky shall be rolled up like a scroll, and all the stars shall fall like leaves from a vine, and as leaves fall from a fig tree. My sword has been made drunk in heaven. Behold, it shall come down from Edom, upon Edom, upon Jordan, and with judgment upon the people doomed to destruction. The sword of Jesus is filled with blood. It is gutted with sap with the blood of goats, underlying goats, lambs, underlying lambs, and with the fat, the fat of goats and rams, underlying rams, for Jesus has a sacrifice in Walsar and a great slaughter in Edom. And the mighty ones shall fall with them, and the rams and the bulls, underlying bulls, and the land should be soaked with blood and should be filled with their fat. For it is the day of judgment of Jesus and the year of repay, underlined repay, of Zion in judgment. And her valleys should be turned into pitch and her land into sulfur and her land should be as pitch burning day and night. So what we have here is those four animals, rams, goats, lambs, and calves, or bulls. The same four animals, the same four that were slaughtered only, only, on the Day of Atonement. When Jesus comes back on the very last day of his wrath, on the day that Babylon falls, on the day that Babylon should be repaid, so shall Zion be repaid so shall all nations be repaid, all the wicked will be repaid, and they will be slaughtered as if they were these animals. Now, animal sacrifices are gone. They are gone. They are done. We are not going to see a physical Jewish temple built during the Great Tribulation or before the Great Tribulation. It won't happen. I'd like for you to use some common sense for a minute here. Common sense will tell you if you really think about it and if you're really honest with yourself. Look at the power and the evil and the wickedness upon the Muslims and Palestinians in Israel, in Jordan, and the United Nations across the globe right now. The very day that a Jew were to lay a stone on the Temple Mount or even beside of it to build a Jewish third temple. 
what would happen? Use some common sense. The Muslims would not allow it. Jordan would not allow it. Iran would not allow it. It would be total chaos. It would be World War III. There is no possibility in any way, in any shape, in any form that the Muslims or the communists or anyone would allow it to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not written in the Word of God. It's not written in the Holy Scriptures that the temple would be rebuilt. The temple of God, where the Antichrist will sit, is in heaven. And yes, that's very, 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 very blasphemous. Very blasphemous. But according to the Bible itself, not my opinion, not my doctrine, not what I think about it, but according to the Bible itself, that is what is going to happen. That the Assyrian will sit in the seat of God in the temple of God. Any temple built by the Jews in the later days would not be called the temple of God. Amen. So anyway, a day of repay. Look at Ezekiel 39. Ezekiel 39, verse 17. Ezekiel 39, verse 17. And you, son of man, say, Thus saith Jesus, say to every winged bird and to all the wild beasts of the field, gather yourselves and come. Gather yourselves from all the places round about to my sacrifice. A sacrifice. Not one for, to atone for sin as far as like to forgive us, but rather one for repay. There's a difference. This sacrifice will not be for forgiveness of sins. This sacrifice will be to repay the wicked, which I have made for you, even a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. He's talking to the raptor birds, the eagles, the vultures, and the beasts of the field to come and eat the flesh at the great supper of God Almighty, not the marriage supper, but the other supper, the supper where the wicked are taken away, where the wicked are taken away by the raptor birds. Being caught up is not the same as a rapture because it's two different groups. Those that are taken away are the wicked and consumed and eaten by birds. They're dead corpse, they're dead body, wherever the corpse is, there will the vultures be gathered together. 
said Jesus in Luke 17, 37. So this is the rapture right here. Dead, wicked people being slaughtered by God and eaten by birds. Look at verse 18. You shall eat the flesh of mighty men, and you shall drink the blood of princes of the earth, rams, underlying rams, calves, underlying goats, underlying And they all fattened calves. They are all fattened calves. It is going to be, I believe, that it will be Holy Day season seventh month. Seven, the number of completeness, the number of fullness, and why is there, why is there three different sets of holy days in that month? In the spring, you've only got Passover and unleavened bread. In the summer, you've only got Pentecost. Why is it in the seventh month that you've got trumpets and Day of Atonement and Tabernacles and the last great day? It has more holy days than any other month of the year in the month of completeness. There's a lot of sevens and a lot of completeness in that month. Now people will say, we do not know the hour. We do not know the day. That even Jesus and even the angels do not know the day or the hour that he shall return. But what people don't realize is when Jesus said that, he was only talking present tense. He was not talking future tense that no one would ever know. He did not say that no one would ever, ever, ever know the day of his return. He was only talking present tense that no one knew at that time. Because when Jesus came into the flesh of men, he humbled himself and he poured himself out into the flesh, humbled himself, and he left on purpose some of his knowledge about the future, about the day of his return, left that knowledge in heaven with the greater, greater measure of himself. Because, see, when he came in the flesh, he did not put all of his being into marriage. All of him could not fit in Mary. She would have exploded. She would have died. He did not put all of himself into Mary. But neither did he put a different person in Mary. He did not put a second person or a third person. He put himself in Mary. He himself came to the earth 
from heaven, the Bible says this, that he left heaven and that he went back to heaven. So he put himself, but he did not put all of himself in Mary. Otherwise, she would have exploded. So the greater measure of himself stayed in heaven while only a fraction of himself went through Mary and entered into the flesh of man. And he humbled himself in so doing that. And he chose to leave that knowledge of of the date of his return in heaven with the greater measure of his self, the greater measure which he prayed to and submitted to. And to this very day, there still remains the greater measure of himself and the smaller tremendous measure of himself on the right-hand side of the Father in heaven. I am not teaching two gods or two fathers or two people or three people. But it's very, very, very clear in Scripture that even to this day in the book of Revelation, in the end times, that Jesus speaks to the Father and the Father speaks to Jesus. That the Father hands Jesus a book, a scroll. They are not two people. They are not three people. They are the one and the same Spirit. We're all baptized into one Spirit, the Bible says. And we only have one God, the Bible says. But he manifests himself in different roles, in different ways. He manifests himself in two manifestations right now beside each other in heaven. But the Bible says in the book of Corinthians, chapter 15, that once everything is done, once everything is accomplished, once even death is conquered, when all things are put under his feet, when all things are put under submission to him, when everything is done and completed and every person and everything that exists is finally brought into submission and under control, he will become whole again. And that's exactly what it says in the Greek, that he shall become whole. And we will no longer see two manifestations in heaven, that we will only see one manifestation. He's only manifesting himself as looking as two right now, only so that it will confuse the wicked, confuse people that don't want to understand refuse the people who want to believe in three gods and cause people to think and also to relate to the different roles and the different manifestations that he is fulfilling for us because that we are carnal and our minds cannot comprehend things that he manifests himself to us as the Father. And yet he manifests himself to us 
as the Son, but he is one Spirit, one God, one Lord. So I get off topic a lot because there's so much to teach. There's so much to explain because there's so much false doctrine in the world that as we come across these things, they must be addressed. They must be taught. They must be straightened out for people. And that's what God wants. God wants us to come back into the unity of doctrine, unity of the truth, unity of of one spirit, but accepting what the Bible says as clear as day, that Jesus speaks to the Father, prays to the Father, submits himself to the Father, even in the book of Revelation, but yet there's one Lord. Let these things not confuse you. And don't be carnal-minded and physically-minded. You have to think spiritually-minded to understand these things. Think spiritually-minded that God is a spirit that exists throughout the universe and he manifests himself in different ways. He manifested himself as King Micaiah. He manifested himself as the angel of the Lord. He manifests himself as the Father as the Son, as the Lamb of God, as the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Ghost. Different manifestations, but one Spirit throughout the entire universe. Let's go now to the book of Revelation. Revelation 11. We're almost done here. Let's go to Revelation 11 here. Look at something in the end time. Dealing with the Ark of the Covenant being opened up. Revelation 11. Verse 19. Revelation 11, verse 19. The temple of the Theos, which is in heaven, not on the temple mount, not on earth, but in heaven was opened, and the ark of the covenant appeared in his temple, and there was flashes of lightning and sounds and pearls of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. And yet, the day of atonement was the only day that the ark of the covenant could be opened. And the only day that the Ark of the Covenant was even visible to mankind. And even then, only to the high priest. But it only happened on the Day of Atonement. When this Ark of the Covenant is opened in heaven in the end times after the Great Tribulation, the Ten Commandments will be there. It is not the same Ark of the Covenant and Ten Commandments that Moses touched or that Aaron touched that was on earth, but rather what was on earth is a replica of what's in heaven. The book book of Hebrews 
teaches us that, that what is on earth is a replica of what is in heaven. So when Moses had the Ten Commandments tablets, when God, Jesus, wrote the Ten Commandments on the two tablets with his own finger, it had already been written in heaven. And the Bible talks about the law of God written in heaven. And people judged from the scrolls and the books and the tablets and so forth of what's written in heaven. The Bible talks about that. The law of God is written in heaven. And those Ten Commandments in heaven will still be in that Ark of the Covenant, preserved, and people will be judged by those Ten Commandments, by those tablets in heaven. How can we say that the Day of Atonement is over with or deleted or done away with by the blood of Jesus? The blood of Jesus does nothing to remove a day of the year. The day of the year still exists. The blood of Jesus does nothing to remove the celebration, the memorial, the commemoration, and the prophetic foreshadowings of the holy days. The holy days teach us the future and the past and the present. It teaches us the salvational plan of God, which is so much more accomplishing, more more active, more full of mercy, more full of grace, more complete and more perfect than anything that Babylon has taught us. Now, will Jesus come back on the Day of Atonement? Right now, this second, I cannot promise you that 100% for sure. But it's definitely a huge possibility. Huge possibility. Now, he may come back on the Day of Trumpets or Atonement. But the seventh month, it looks like to me like a 99% chance that he would come back in the seventh month. And I will show you one more thing. And let's go back to the Old Testament in Zechariah 14. We know that Zechariah 14 deals with the fiesta of tabernacles. But look at this. It's in the context of Jesus' return. Have you ever noticed that before? That the teaching that all nations must come up to Jerusalem to worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords at the Feast of Tabernacles is in the context of his return. Zechariah 14, verse 1, Behold, the days of Jesus come, and your spoils shall be divided in you. And I will gather all the Gentiles to Jerusalem to war, and their cities shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women ravished, 
and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, for the rest of my people shall not be utterly cut off from the city. Now, verse 1 and verse 2 there in Zechariah 14, those first two verses are talking about the great tribulation, the invasion of Israel in our day and our time, the beginning of the great tribulation. But then in verse 3, verse 3 jumps ahead into the future. Verse 3, 4, and 5 is talking about the battle of Armageddon, the very day that Jesus returns. So it jumps three and a half years into the future in verse 3. Verse 3, Jesus shall go forth and fight with those Gentiles as when he fought in the day of war. And his feet shall stand in that day on the Mount of Olives, not the Temple Mount. He's not coming back to the Temple Mount. He's coming back to the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave asunder, half of it toward the east and toward the west, a very great division, and half of the mountain shall lean to the north and half of it to the south. Verse 5, and the valley of my mountains shall be closed up, and the valley of the mountains shall be joined on to Tassod, and should be blocked up as it was blocked up in the days of the earthquake, in the days of Ozoas, King of Judah, and Jesus, Matthias, shall come, and all the saints with him. The saints are coming back with Jesus. The saints are not caught up the same day Jesus is coming down. They have already been caught up at the seventh trumpet. They come back with him. Now, verses 6 through 11 jumps ahead even farther into the future. Verses 6 through 11 jumps all the way past the 1,000 years, past the 100 years, and all the way into new heaven, new earth. Verse 6 through 11, talking about new heaven, new earth, paradise. And it shall come to pass in that day that there should be no light or light source, and there should be for one day foe and false in the day that should be known to Jesus, and it should not, that needs to be translated pattern. And that day should be known to Jesus, and it should not be day or night, but towards evening it shall be light. And in that day, living water shall come forth out of Jerusalem, talking about Jesus himself. Half of it toward the formal sea, half of it toward the latter sea, and so shall it be in the summer and the spring. Jesus shall be king over all the earth. In that day, there shall be one Lord and his name one. You'll no longer have two. You'll no longer have two manifestations. The only one Lord. We still only have one Lord now. And his name will only be one. You're not going to have People using different names. Only one name. Even so shall it, should it be right now. Because Acts 4, Acts 4 verse 12 tells us that neither is there salvation in any other. For there's only none, none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's only one name. And in that day, all these false names will be gone. 
verse 10, compassing all the earth and the wilderness. Let's go down to verse 12. Verse 12 actually goes back in time. Now, we've been moving forward and moving forward and moving forward, but now verse 12 through 15 goes back to Armageddon. Verse 12 to 15 goes back to the same time that had already been talked about in verses 3 to 5, because verse 3 to 5 was on again. Now, verse 12 to 15 is also going back to the battle of Armageddon, the day Jesus returns. And it says in verse 12, and this shall be the overthrow with which Jesus will smite all the nations, as many as have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they are standing on their feet, and their eyes shall melt out of their hose, and their tongues shall consume away in their mouth. And there shall be in that day a great panic from Jesus upon them, and they shall lay hold every man of the hand of his neighbor, and his hand shall be clasped with the hand of his neighbor. And Judah shall also fight in Jerusalem, Theos shall gather the strength of all the nations round about, gold and silver and apparel in great abundance. And this shall be the overthrow of the horses and the mules and the camels and the donkeys and all the beasts that are in those camps according to this overthrow. In other words, a slaughtering of both man and beast upon the wicked of those who refuse to repent. Now, verse 16 through the rest of the chapter, goes back again into the future again. It goes back and forth from the past to the future. So verse 16 through the rest of the chapter is talking about the 1,000 years. The 1,000 years now. Verse 16, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall be left Whoever survived, whoever is still left standing, those are left of the nations that came against Jerusalem. This is talking about Russia, China, Iran, Syria, Iraq. These are talking about Muslim and communist people, lost people, who fought against Jerusalem, who survived the great tribulation, and survive the wrath of God because God has chosen to allow even, even, even a remnant of the Gentiles, not just a remnant of Israel, but even a remnant of the Gentiles because he also wants to save them. And he wants them to learn about the holy days and about Jesus. That's really the whole purpose of the great tribulation and the wrath of God is to continue to plead and plead and plead with people, both Gentile and Hebrew and Israelite and all the tribes of the people, regardless of race, regardless of language, regardless of color, regardless of bloodline, to try to get as many people as possible saved during the tribulation 
And during the wrath, during the spanking, while he is spanking us and pleading with us to repent. And he will allow some people to survive all of that, even through the wrath of these nations that came against Jerusalem. And it says here in verse 16 that these people, that they shall come up every year. This is not talking about only the saints. This is talking about flesh and blood people who continue to live into the millennium. That they should come up every year to worship the King, Jesus Almighty, and to keep the fiesta of tabernacles. Verse 17. And it should come to pass that whosoever of all the families or the tribes of the earth that should not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, Jesus Almighty, even these shall be added to the others. And if the family of Egypt shall not go up nor come, then upon them shall be the overthrow or the slaughter or the accursing with which Jesus shall smite all the nations, whichever of them that shall not come up to keep the fiesta of tabernacles. These are lost people, flesh and blood people, who continue to live in the millennium, who continue to sin, who continue to rebel, who continue to say, I refuse to serve Jesus, to worship Jesus, and to keep the fiesta of tabernacles. This is Egypt. This is Muslims. These are Gentiles, who Jesus says, you must, Keep the fiesta of tabernacles. And notice the context. The return of Jesus Christ. Now, do you really think that the fiesta of tabernacles is the only time of year that people are going to be required to worship Jesus? No. What other holy days? There were three pilgrimages a year where people were told to take their pilgrimage, to travel, to go to Jerusalem, which now uh, can be anywhere where God puts his name, the Bible says, not just Jerusalem. Anywhere God puts his name, we go to that place for the Fiesta of Tabernacles. But not just the Fiesta of Tabernacles, but also Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. We need to be going out of our town and go camping, not just in the autumn of the year, not just at Tabernacles, but also for Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread. It says it in the Bible. And then again, for Pentecost. The Pentecost is only one day. But it says three times a year that we are supposed to take these pilgrimages. But immediately, I can't afford it. You can't afford not to. Amen. And if you are saving back your second tithes, as the Bible instructs us to do, then yes, you can afford it. But they have fired me. No, they won't. The law says 
that they must not fire you for religious holy days. And if they do fire you, God will bless you with another job. And if he doesn't, you will still survive. You just won't be able to buy a second computer and a second TV and the movie tickets and the pizza and the other luxuries. It'll be rough. Times are going to get rough. But the most important thing is to not compromise and to always obey God. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But he wants us to do these things voluntarily, not just because that he commands them, but rather out of love and out of respect. That we love our parents, our father, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, and we want to serve him. And we want to come and worship him. So and he would rather for us to have that attitude of love. But notice again, as we come to our uh, last few minutes here, before we disconnect from the Internet, that this is not for the Jews only, but for the Gentiles as well. And those people will be accursed who do not keep his holy day. And why is it then, if there are three pilgrimages a year, when people are to go up to where he has put his name, and in that day, it will be Jerusalem. And in that day, you will no longer be traveling to Tennessee, but you'll be traveling to Jerusalem. And why does it say, why doesn't it say, if they don't come up at Passover? Why does it not say, if they don't come up at the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Why does it not say, if they don't come up for Pentecost? The only possible answer to that question is only if the Feast of Tabernacles is the first holiday that occurs after he comes back. That's the only logical answer. Because, yes, we will be going to Jerusalem for all of those holy days. But the context shows that after he returns, tabernacles will be very soon thereafter. We may not know 100% for sure right now, this second, of exactly which day, but that seventh month, you can count on it. You can count on it. He's coming back in seven months. Amen. Now, once we see the abomination of desolation in heaven, in the holy place, Matthew twenty four fifteen. Once we see that a sod appearing in the sky, sitting 
in the throne of God, in the temple of God, you can start counting the days. Daniel asked the question in Daniel 12. He said, How long shall it be to the end of these? And the angel told him, 1,335 days. And if we have already graduated elementary school, and maybe even some of the people that's not yet graduated elementary school can surely count 1,335 days. And if it is impossible for any man to ever come to know the day of his return, then why would it tell us the exact number of days to count? starting from the abomination of desolation in heaven. When we see that day, all we got to do is start counting the days. One, two, three, four, five. You come to 1,335 days. That is the day of Jesus' return. Why does even the book of Revelation tell us that the great tribulation will last exactly 1,260 days if we are not going to be able to count down. We're going to be able to count down. From the day of the manifestation of the Antichrist to the invasion of Jerusalem 30 days later, to the 1,260 days of the Great Tribulation, through the 45-day wrath of God, to the final day of the Battle of Armageddon. You'll be able to write it on your calendar because you are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb of God at the blowing of the seventh trumpet, the first day of wrath. And if you are the bride of God, then you are not ignorant of your own marriage date. Is the bridegroom himself ignorant to this very day? Is Jesus ignorant of his own marriage date? No, he's not. He chose to not bring that knowledge with him. But now he knows. Because now he is back in heaven. And now he has been re-glorified and knows all things. And now is teaching us, his children, all things. It is not impossible to understand the mysteries of God. Paul said that Jesus taught him the mysteries of God, even the deep things. But Babylon wants to keep you in a programming, brainwashing that says you cannot know the deep things of God. It's impossible to know these things. But Jesus says otherwise. Four years from today is the Day of Atonement of 2021. 
we have to wait over these next few months as we enter the third trimester of pregnancy. Right now, we're in the second trimester. When a woman is pregnant, there are three trimesters. We're in the second trimester right now. Matthew 24 and Revelation 12 both talk about birth pains in the end time, uh, increasing in the wars and the rumors of war, the rumors of the Korean War, and the war in Syria, how all these things are going to increase as we get closer and closer and closer to the birthing of the Great Tribulation. And as we enter into the third trimester in November and December of this year, as you see the earthquakes intensify and increase, as you see the war and the movement of ships in the Mediterranean Sea, and as you start to see them prepare to strike a sod with the daily head wound of Revelation 13, verse 3, then we will know whether it's going to be 2021 or not. Because we have to have 1,335 days. And you cannot fit 1,335 days, Daniel 12, into between now and next year, or the year after, or the year after. So it's impossible for Jesus to come back tonight. It's impossible for Jesus to come back tomorrow. It's impossible because we have to have the fulfillment of Every, every, every one of these 1,335 days, they all must come to pass before the Lord comes. So the very first possible day of atonement would be 2021, four years from today. But we have to wait to see what happens in the third trimester. We have to see if America prepares to strike Assad and World War III breaks out in Syria, if that's going to happen in December and January. And if it don't happen in December and January and February, then it's not going to be the Day of Atonement of 2021. But rather, it could be the seventh month of 2022 or 2023 or whatever. So we take this one day at a time, one week at a time, one month at a time, one year at a time, and continue to prepare. And continue to prepare. And not go back to our old ways, but keep learning, keep growing, and keep growing in a, a better and deeper and more sincere personal relationship of our Lord and Savior, our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. Take the rest of this day to not only rest and fast and afflict your appetite and afflict your souls, but also to look at some more of these scriptures, these chapters, re-examine, think about these things, pray about these things, and also think about 
that when Jesus comes, he's not coming back to be a, a pleaser or to shake hands or to smile or to make friends. But he's coming back, the Bible says in Revelation 19, with a fist of iron, with great wrath and great anger, and he's coming back to slaughter many people of the wicked at the Battle of Armageddon. It won't be a beautiful day for many. But in another sense, it will be a beautiful day because we, wearing white robes, symbolically or spiritually, will be on white horses, Revelation 19, following him as his army. And we will come down to conquer this world. One more thing. Last night, I was feeling the wrath of God in me against the wickedness of this world. I don't see how anybody can watch the news or read the news or understand the wickedness of this world, how wicked it really is, without getting angry. God is angry. I feel his anger. And he's he's becoming more and more and more angry. He really is. That the sins of the people are getting piled up to heaven and these sins are extinct to him. And he's sick and tired of it. And what we're seeing right now, I don't think most people understand or comprehend how wicked it has really gotten. What we're seeing right now, like with that group called Antifa, and different people pronounce it different ways, uh, Atifa, Antifa, however you want to pronounce it, a communist, left-wing, evil, terrorist group that has many, many, many followers all across the United States who are teaching violence in the streets, teaching that we need to raise up and have civil war in America to destroy everything that is righteous, everything that is holy, everything that represents God, everything that honors God, everything that respects God, they want to destroy. And they are becoming a large, huge, powerful force in the United States. And not just that group, but the entire Democrat party, and that's exactly what they are, Democrats, let's call them for what they really are. People that believe in murdering babies in the womb. People who keep Christmas, Halloween, Easter. You know what I just saw the other day, yesterday, I guess? A Christmas tree for Halloween with the jack-o'-lanterns and the different Halloween scarecrows and all that within a Christmas tree. And Every year I'm starting to notice more and more and more 
how Christmas and Halloween is the exact same thing. And that how even the Satanists put up a Christmas tree. And how even the atheists do that. And even the atheists and the Satanists and the witches, they all keep Christmas. They all do. It does not honor God. Abortion, homosexuality, the Democrat Party, the Communist Party, all these people that hate Trump with a passion because he stands for righteousness, even though he is a fool, and even though he's not wise, and even though he is a hypocrite, and even though he is in Babylon, that at the same time, he does represent righteousness, And he does represent what is right and what is good. And people hate that. People hate it with a passion. What we're seeing is an increase in hate. And this goes right along with Matthew 24. Not only shall we hear of wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and hurricanes and all these things and nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, but also that they would hate you. That they would hate you for his name. And now, more than ever before in our lifetime and more than ever before in 2,000 years, people hate anybody that believes in the name of Jesus. And it is war. It is real war. Now these people on the left are becoming actually violent, not just hateful, and not just mean words, but taking violence into their own hands more and more and more. And it is going to be a war, not just just between nations, but between families and individuals all across this nation and across this world. And once we get into the great tribulation, the time of greatest tribulation, once we get into that time frame, the true followers of Jesus Christ are going to have to change and stop being wimps God is going to raise up bold, brave men and women who will set fire to these satanic Christmas trees and overthrow the altars and the groves and destroy the satanic statues and altars that are being erected across the globe. There is a day coming when we must return to be in the army of the Lord like we were in Old Testament times. Right now, we can't go out and destroy and burn the things of Satan without going to prison. But I'll tell you this. If a person were to do such a thing and go out and destroy a building
building or a statue or a tree of Satan. And even though you may go to prison or jail for it, God would honor you and not curse you. I'm not telling anybody to go out and do these things right now. But when the great tribulation happens and you no longer have your local police force and you no longer have your local reserves and your local armies and your local governments and not even your federal government because every one of those empires are all going to fall in the early days of the great tribulation and you will no longer have a 911 to call and you'll no longer have your local service because they are going to be out on the battlefront fighting the Chinese and the Russians. They're going to have things much larger to worry about rather than you burning a Christmas tree. And in that day and in that time, it's going to be time to fight back, literally and physically. And I know the Bible says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal I know that we are to fight spiritually. I know that we are to fight with fasting and with prayer. But I also know the anger of God. His spirit, his true will, and how that he is sick and tired of people being scared, people being wimps, and people sitting down and letting the devil and allowing the devil to conquer everything without us lifting a finger. We sit at home and we pray while the devils go out and conquer our schools, our families, our children, and everything else in our society while we sit home and say, vengeance is the Lord's, he'll take care of it. We don't have to do nothing because our weapons is not carnal. God is sick and tired of your letter of the law wimpy, couch-potato religion. It's time that people start voting again. It is time that people start petitioning, walking the streets, carrying the picket sign, and, and, and lifting up your voice and fighting back. The war is real. Amen. Do not touch the flesh of men. Do not touch the flesh of men. But you can overthrow the altars, Christmas trees, the statues. You can. And some of you will. To each person, whatever God allots to you, for you to do. 
God has designed it for some people to flee into the wilderness. God has designed it for some people to stand upon, uh, in front of the judges, in front of the kings, in front of the presidents. God has allotted for some people to be thrown into the lion's den. God has allotted for some people to be beheaded. God has allowed and allotted and designed for some people to go into hiding and to close your door behind you, but he has also designed for some people to go to the battlefront, to wage war, and to fight back. Don't judge somebody else for their calling of what God has designed for them to do in that day and in that hour. Things are changing. And they're changing much, much, much more than people understand and comprehend. The great tribulation and the events upon this world in the coming days, weeks, and months will change your life. Draw near unto the Lord like never before to hear his voice and not just mine. Follow him, not me. Obey him and serve him wherever he may lead you in your particular situation. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your forbearance. Thank you for your long-suffering with me today. And the next Holy Day is coming up is the Fiesta of Tabernacles. So our very next broadcast will be October the 5th, Thursday. I believe that's Thursday. Wednesday? Thursday? Thursday. Yep. October 5th, Thursday our normal time for the broadcast for all the Holy Days, 2 o'clock Eastern Time in the afternoon. Uh, I thank everybody that's been listening in Korea and Australia. Please keep desire and meekness in prayer. They both live in Zimbabwe and that God's will prevail there about whether or not we can establish a congregation there. Please keep them in prayer also for maintenance to get a job and more internet capability. Pray for Kiki in Australia for God to lead her uh, to more true brothers and sisters to be there with her. Uh, I know it's very, very difficult when somebody is all by themselves and there's nobody in your entire town or state or nation that uh, is serving God, uh, but God is going to be faithful and he's going to unite some of us and gather us together and, and bring us together with other true believers as we continue to grow up and mature and draw closer to him. He will also draw us together as well as a family, as a church, and as a army. Amen. Pray for AJ in Korea for uh, 
his travels for the fiesta, for good weather, for warm weather. Uh, pray for us, Mrs. Harris, coming down from New York State to be with us for the fiesta. Anybody else is welcome as well. And uh, I'll be working more and more on the uh, Bible translation. Uh, hopefully, maybe tomorrow in the next couple of days, uh, if the time allows. And then when we get back from the fiesta, getting hard to work on perfecting this translation, working out some of the kinks. Thank you for your patience and your understanding on that. So our broadcast is the next two Thursdays and the next two Saturdays for the Holy Days and for the weekly seventh day as well. Um, chat room will be canceled for the next two weeks. We have chat rooms on uh, Thursday nights. Those will be canceled for the next two weeks so that we can uh, rest and, and do the Holy Days and so forth. Pray for a possibility of a new chat room uh, that will be hopefully improved. Pray for Michael, uh, who just came to the knowledge that there is God. Uh, pray for him to stay in there uh, with God, with Jesus Christ, and with this ministry that God has brought him to. Pray for Nicholas, also, also in Australia, in a different town. A young man, still live with his parents, still going to school, but coming to the knowledge of the truth and the acceptance of the truth to so pray for Nicholas. Uh, also, we're going to have baptism during the Feast of Tabernacles. Mrs. Harris will be baptized, so that's going to be very exciting. I hope that everybody has a very relaxing and refreshing fiesta of Tabernacles. I hope that you have plenty to eat. I hope that uh, it will be warm and dry and safe where you are. We're praying for all of you. We appreciate your prayers. We love you, every one of you, and thank you for listening today. And all of this, in Jesus' name, amen.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.